Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, November 1st, 2020. And the we, last uh, the, one before the, the election day. The last Sunday before the general, pre- the presidential general election. This is the race we were thinking about when we first dreamed up Polylog about examining how the Sunday shows cover elections, what they do well, what they don't. That led to how administrations govern. And we're here, our first presidential election while recording Polylog. Very exciting and uh, lots of excitement yet to come, I am absolutely sure. But at the top of today's show, we're going to talk about what everything was, everything that was said on the Sunday shows this week. But we also want to solicit some feedback from you. Yeah, so as I'm sure the same with all of our listeners, we are super eager to see the results of the election on Tuesday. Maybe we'll find out Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, maybe Thursday, maybe the next week. Who knows? But beyond just the the winner of the presidential election, we're just really interested to see how, you know, all these news institutions that we follow so closely, how they cover this moment. This has been a very atypical presidency. There's been a lot of trying to figure out how to cover this president. And our politics have changed a lot. And so we're really interested in seeing how they fare in covering the results of of this election. Absolutely. So what we're looking for from you are tweets, emails, even audiograms, audio messages. If you want to email, you have voice memos if you want to email those to us. So if you have an iPhone, you can just open up voice memo and and send us a quick note. That would be amazing because we could put your voice in the show. Yeah. And so any observations that you noticed from any news network or even if it's something you see online or written, just kind of what are the news observations that you make in the next few days as the results start coming in? And we will love to cover it on next week's show. All right. So we so have something else to look forward to. Yeah, there's a lot of goodies coming in this week. Yes. So lots to, to review and discuss next week. And if you'd like to send us an email or send us a voice memo, you can send that to podcast at polylog.com. Okay, so Naomi, what are we talking about this week? Yeah, so when we're looking at the shows, it kind of got divided into three distinct categories. We're going to look at one, just the data and the state of the race, kind of general horse race of it all. We're going to then talk about what the campaigns, specifically the Trump and Biden campaigns, what their messaging is and how they are trying to hone in on these last few days. And then in the third little segment, we're going to look at the Senate races and just kind of other noteworthy comments that were made as well. So a lot to cover. So let's jump right into highlight low light. Brendan, we have a big low light. It's geared towards one of the shows, but a lot of the shows kind of did this. What What's the low light today? So first, I want to start off by saying the show is Meet the Press, but I thought it was the strongest show of all the shows. Right. However, this was the one part that was not very strong. And it's something that was missing on a lot of the other shows as well. Yes. As we know, there has been lots of talk. First of all, there have been lots of lawsuits 
that have been pushed forwards by Republicans throughout the country trying to stop voters from being able to vote in certain ways or invalidate ballots that have already come in or will be coming in ahead of time to improve their chances of winning. And this is absolutely happening. It's just a fact that it's happening. And it's also a fact that Donald Trump has talked about how important it is for him and his team to be sending in lawyers and to dispute the election if it doesn't turn out the way that they want it to turn out. I mean, he says this in almost every rally now. It's part of his rallying cry. Unfortunately, this was covered to very disappointing extent on Meet the Press. Meet the Press invited on a very well-regarded expert in the area of election legal matters. However, the discussion was completely whitewashed from the we so, did not see the words voter suppression anywhere in this discussion. Nowhere did that come up. Nowhere did the question come up of why there were lawsuits or who was putting the lawsuits forwards or what the purpose was of these lawsuits. None of that showed up in this conversation. Instead, take a listen to how this exchange took place. This is Chuck Todd in conversation with Nate Persilli. And Nate Persilli is an elections law professor at Stanford University. Where, besides Pennsylvania, what what other battleground states do you expect to see quite a bit of litigation? Well, we've already seen over 300 lawsuits in this election. So we're we're seeing in the battleground states, we're seeing in the non-battleground states. We've seen quite a bit in uh, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, but also places like Texas, where we had a a lawsuit that was just filed yesterday. Uh, We've seen some interesting uh, rulings in uh, Minnesota even recently. Uh, So we're seeing it all around the country. Uh, This is sort of the legacy of Bush versus Gore 20 years ago, is that uh, Mm -hmm. the lawyers are becoming an important part of the campaign as well. And it does seem as if its ballot arrival um, seems to be uh, where where there is some uh, room for for litigation. How did that become such a vague um, deadline when you would think a postmark on Election Day seems pretty simple to me? Well, several states uh, provide for postmarks on Election Day, but many states also say you have to receive the ballots uh, on Election Day. And so a lot of what's happened is response to the coronavirus pandemic, because what what a lot of administrators did is they extended the deadlines or courts extended the deadlines. So that led to further lawsuits to try to clarify what the rules were. And then those ended up at the U.S. Supreme Court, where there's been a fight as to whether non-legislators, which is to say state courts or uh, local administrators, can extend the deadlines like that. Nate Priscilli says, we've already seen over 300 lawsuits in this election, he says. You know, he talks about it almost like we've already seen some rain in the upper uh, upper Midwest and it's, it's, you know, it's moving across the uh, Mississippi Delta. And it's like, yeah, we've seen a lot of rain in, in different parts. It's almost like it's a natural force, these lawsuits, mm-hmm. and that it's just something that we're commenting on, but God knows where it comes from. You know, we don't control the weather. We don't control the lawsuits. They're just they're just there. We're As he says, we're seeing it in the non-battleground states. You know, we're seeing it. We've seen quite a bit of it. It sounds like he's talking about a natural process, not something that has people behind it with a purpose and an agenda to invalidate the vote and suppress the vote, which is exactly what's happening. This whole conversation is completely, as I said earlier, whitewashed. Yeah, it's the vagueness of it all that is really frustrating. And 
doesn't make it clear what exactly is happening. So unless you are following the Supreme Court rulings or the suppression efforts really closely, you might not understand what the heck they're talking about. Just It just seemed really lacking in terms of explaining the recent decisions by the Supreme Court on some of these election rulings in terms of which states were suing, why, what they were claiming, what was decided, what has yet to be decided, or what was pushed down to the lower courts. I mean, I get that it gets pretty wonky and in the weeds, but this is they didn't even try, it seemed like. And again, this isn't just Meet the Press. We're, we're kind of using them as an example because it seemed most glaring. The absence seems so glaring, but a lot of the shows did this. They didn't really explain to us why there might be this dispute come Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. Like maybe America won't be surprised if they were able to explain it better. So just super frustrating because there's a really decent chance that that's where we're at on Wednesday. It just seems insane that you talk about lawsuits and you don't talk about the purpose of the lawsuits. That's what's that's what's mad. And their effect. Yeah. The only place, by the way, that voter suppression was mentioned on the whole of Meet the Press was by a Democratic panelist on the panel and also by Lester Holt in his one sentence pre-taped answer to the question, what are you looking for on election night? Naomi, what was your highlight this week? So one of the highlights, my highlight is this really lighthearted moment on Fox News Sunday when Chris Wallace interviews Senator Amy Klobuchar. Of course, Senator Klobuchar is the Democratic senator from Minnesota. And she did a little kind of not throwback. What's the word when you kind of in in a movie in the script? A callback. It's callback. a callback. Yes. She did a Nice little callback to earlier in October where Chris Wallace had one of the worst days of his career. Take a listen. But I did want to get at some of the economic arguments that uh, Corey was making in the segment before I went on. I thought your uh, poll right. was fascinating from Fox. What? But no, okay, no, no, I, I got, got you know, I'm, I'm, what, thank you. You're the moderator. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I sometimes forget that. That's listening to the science who's going to do something about it and get the vaccine out in a way that makes sense. Um, this is really Finally, the heart and soul Finally. of the argument here at the end. Yeah. Senator, I, as you said, I'm the moderator, or in this case, the host. <laughs> uh, Senator uh, Joe Biden and you ran in the centrist lanes. So I just thought this was really funny. I think in, earlier in the interview, she ex- she contextualizes something that Trump said in that first debate to the debate where he interrupted you a hundred times. <laughs> and like, I thought it was just a lighthearted way to say, yes, our president is a mess and you experienced it too. Personally. So, yeah, Very exactly. personally. <laughs> and also very publicly. <laughs> so publicly. Yeah. It was a lot of numbers and facts and kind of potential doom and gloom if, if your party isn't in the lead or isn't planning on winning or whatever so this isn't planning on winning (laughs) on track to win but this lighthearted moment was appreciated yes brendan what's your highlight so my highlight is from state of the union we have highlighted these things similarly in the past but this one really stood out to us this was when jake tapper introduced the show talked about why he was going to have a conversation with an official from the Biden campaign, but not anyone from the Trump White House or the Trump campaign. We invited the White House to provide a guest for the show this morning. They declined. They pointed us to the Trump campaign. The Trump campaign offered us their national press secretary, Hogan Gidley, whom we accepted. 
Then they rescinded the offer and offered senior advisor to the campaign, David Bossie, whom we also accepted. They confirmed he would be here. Then they pulled him with no explanation, refusing to provide anyone else. Gotta love that transparency. Yes, I do appreciate the transparency. And it's so important when campaigns kind of like spin you around like that, when you're trying to produce a show, literally the show before the election, it seems like that's also kind of campaign malpractice to not send somebody to CNN to talk about this sort of stuff. Yeah, I hope, you know, regardless whatever happens on Tuesday, I hope this is a norm that continues, that the shows explain their efforts in terms of their booking. And if someone doesn't want to come on, an administration official, an agency, whatever, like we deserve to know about that. Like, why are they genuinely hiding from the press? And this is, I think, a reasonable expectation to have from your state officials, from even your local officials. Like your local paper should say, we try, you know, obviously they can say so-and-so didn't want to provide comment. But like, if you're watching the news or reading the paper, like, and your mayor doesn't want to say something about something that's controversial, like, you should know that. So this is something that takes up time. And every time I hear it, I'm like, good, I'm glad I know. Absolutely. And it's such a contast to the Trump campaign in 2016, when Trump made himself so available to the Sunday shows, he was everywhere. And now it's like, they're just not showing up. Now, Jason Miller did show up on another broadcast. And Corey Lewandowski. And Corey Lewandowski. But that's two out of five, right? Right. All right, Naomi, that takes us to the election, which is what it says here on our agenda. Lots of ends. ends. (laughs) And let's begin with what I mentioned earlier, which is that Meet the Press really led the pack this week with valuable, insightful coverage that we want to see. And I just want to note, like, Meet the Press, sometimes we can ding it and others criticize it for being too focused on the horse race aspects of elections and politics in general. But guess what? Two days before the vote for the president, that's the time to focus on the horse race. And Meet the Press did it and did it well and thoughtfully and insightfully. And here's just one such data point. We're going to have a few of them from Meet the Press this week. Our final NBC News Wall Street Journal poll completed overnight shows Joe Biden leading President Trump by 10 points among registered voters, 52-42. That 10-point spread, that's the biggest for any presidential candidate in our poll at this late stage since Bill Clinton's re-election in 1996. And for those of you with dreams or nightmares about a 2016 repeat, it is worth noting that our last poll four years ago showed Hillary Clinton with a shrinking four-point lead. It was 44-40 on this morning four years ago. That was down from a 10-point lead. And more importantly, Clinton's 44 number left a whole lot of undecideds in a campaign where far fewer early votes had been banked. This is just really, really helpful context to understand where we are and how this race really does look different from the Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump race in 2016. So many people have been watching this presidential battle and thinking about 2016 and how Hillary had a strong lead for quite a while throughout the summer before that election, and Biden has had a pretty strong lead throughout this summer, and a lot of people have been worried and concerned that things were going to shrink or change or tighten up at the last minute. And here's Meet the Press right at the top of their show saying, look, we are now two days before Election Day. We can see 
how four years ago Hillary's lead had shrunk so much by this point and that Hillary's lead was, you know, left on the table so many independents and undecided voters, I should say undecided voters, who hadn't decided even at that late stage which direction they were going to go when they were in the ballot box or in the ballot booth. And that's not the case. This is a very, very different race than we had in 2016. And I appreciate all those data points to very early set the tone. That's an important point to remember is that it really kind of framed the whole show in understanding where we were in 2020 in comparison to 2016. A lot of people kind of talked to pollsters on their show or, you know, had their own polls that were were out they talked about, but I don't think they kind of anchored their show in the same way that Meet the Press did. And speaking of contextualizing that data, there was another point in Meet the Press, and that was when Chuck Todd explains how the Democrats are trying to gain ground, especially in states in the South. And the 538.com polling average has Biden up by just a point and a half. And it makes Georgia a true toss-up state. It is where we find Blaine Alexander. She is in Atlanta. And really, it is about Atlanta turnout and the Atlanta suburbs. What do you tell us, Blaine? You know, Chuck, just the fact that we are even talking about the state of Georgia right now shows you just how much things have changed in this once reliably red state. You know, consider this. President Trump won the state of Georgia in 2016 by five points without making a single stop here once he became the party's official nominee. Well, now we're seeing the president twice in the peach state in the final three weeks of this campaign, including a stop today. Now, on the Democratic side, we're seeing a stop from Senator Kamala Harris. Also today, tomorrow, former President Barack Obama will in Atlanta. And all of this, of course, comes on the heels of Joe Biden's appearance here just last week. So, wow, Georgia has become a swing state and they are swinging in and out of that state very, very frequently, all the candidates. Yeah. And later, I think it's immediately after this response, Chuck Todd says something to the effect of if Democrats get Georgia, they have Stacey Abrams to think and really kind of reexamining what their expectations are for Democratic senators and statewide officials throughout the South, right? I think a long time there had been this expectation of like the white Democratic senator that can win certain states. And what Stacey Abrams really demonstrated is that with a compelling candidate who really makes the case to communities across their whole state, you can really bridge that gap. And even though she didn't win, it demonstrated how close you can get. And now North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, goodness, even Texas seems like a possibility for Democrats. And so it's kind of really changing, kind of, I don't know, the goggles that we we wear and trying to understand what's possible in the South. Yeah, I'm surprised that Stacey Abrams wasn't on any of the Sunday shows. Yeah, that's true. Week. She's hustling trying to get those votes. <laughs> yeah. And the final piece I thought it was really important to highlight from Meet the Press was this really cogent piece of analysis looking at key events in this election cycle that actually had some impact. You know, every time there was a new piece of news, and that seemed to be every week during this election, everyone said, yeah, but is it really going to matter, right? Oh, yeah, that was some crazy thing that happened, but is it really going to change the polls? Is it really going to mean anything? And so often people got into this position where they were like, oh, yeah, no, probably not. You know, nothing seems to mean anything. Nothing. This is a very stable race, very stable polling. But actually, there were moments that did mean something. Looking back, we can see in the polls what mattered and 
Chuck Todd does a really good job very quickly summarizing some of those moments. Uh, If Joe Biden wins, we may look back at three moments as key to his success. There's, of course, Congressman James Clyburn's endorsement that sent him on his way in South Carolina and on Super Tuesday, wrapped up the nomination. There was President Trump's trip and photo op at St. John's Church on June 1st. And then the president's disastrous performance in the first debate. All three were seismic uh, polling shifts that became durable after the shift. Now, if the president wins, it will largely be because he has a dedicated and durable base that is large and well-positioned enough to snag an electoral college victory even when Mr. Trump loses the popular vote. In re-listening to that clip, it appears to me that the second moment that Chuck Todd is describing there where... Donald Trump goes to the church in the midst of all the riots in front of the White House. Where he forcibly removes peaceful protesters in front of the White to House. To get his photo op. It's not necessarily that exact moment, but it's the greater moment of frustration and rage across the country leading to protests and the president being completely incapable of speaking to that anger and, and pain. Yeah, you know, as you say that, Naomi... Like, I was frustrated by the lack of specificity about what Trump actually did. He didn't just walk to a church. That Usually when people walk to churches, that doesn't cause a massive drop in their polling. That was my original frustration. But it is it is important to reflect that hardly any of these shows really looked back on the whole Black Lives Matter movement and what we actually saw, all those protests this summer that were really meaningful. I mean, none of the shows really talked about race to begin with, to be clear. Didn't talk about Black Lives Matter, didn't talk about immigration, didn't talk about the Muslim ban. I think there's a whole layer of race that has been kind of missing in the last few weeks. Yeah, the only lens through which they looked at that was specific demographic groups and how they might be voting. But as we mentioned, a lot of the shows had kind of their pollster, their kind of data head on the show to talk about kind of the analysis that they were seeing. And we saw this as well on Face the Nation. Yeah, this was kind of interesting. You know, Anthony Salvanto, we've talked about him since the John Dickerson years at Face the Nation. And he's usually been very insightful, but he hasn't really been on the show all that much in the Margaret Brennan era and during this election. And his take today, it was an outlier, right? It was absolutely an outlier in the predictions and the storytelling that he was bringing to the understanding of election day. So take a listen to his take on the election and just we're going to drop you into this clip right as he's been talking about how many early votes have come in and how many of those have been by registered Democrats. The central question of this election, which is, can the president get an election day surge of his voters to make up that difference? And I can tell you by the numbers that he can. And let me also explain why that is. And it's the continuing impact of the coronavirus pandemic on voters. People all throughout our polling this summer and fall have told us that they're concerned about it. The people who've already voted have been more concerned. The people who are going to vote on election day say that they are concerned, but Margaret, they are relatively less so. So how does that impact, given our concerns about increased infections? What does that mean for the outstanding vote? Could it have an impact? So, Margaret, it could have a big impact because so much of this is still about turnout on Election Day. 
We ran the numbers. This is our baseline battleground tracker estimates from all 50 states because it's a 50-state race that decides the presidency. And the states shaded in blue are the ones leaning towards Joe Biden. That adds up, as it has throughout the fall, to a narrow electoral college lead for him at the moment. But because of that uncertainty around the turnout, if you imagine, and we ran the numbers, that there is that Republican surge come Tuesday and the Democrats can't match it, then the president would hold on to a string of states that he won back in 2016. There's enough vote out there for him to do it. So this is a very, very different picture that is being painted by Anthony Salvanto versus what we heard on Meet the Press. Now, Meet the Press's picture was backed up by a lot of polling and data that NBC News had put together. And looking at, you know, and we also heard about the 538 average, which is something interesting to hear about on Meet the Press since it's uh, owned by ABC News, 538 right now. But what Anthony Salvanto is saying here is it's almost anyone's game. If a lot of Trump voters show up, then that could be the ball game, and Trump could win. And not only could win, but is almost as likely to win, is what it sounds like, right? Because he says Joe Biden has a very narrow electoral lead in their battleground tracker currently, and that Trump could absolutely make that up by just getting a lot of people to turn out on Election Day. But that is so, so different, right, Naomi? So different from what all these other polls and data points have been pointing towards. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about if you are like a diehard CBS News fan versus an NBC News or an ABC News fan, you might be, I mean, hopefully you're getting a wide, diverse range of news sources. But if you're only catching one of these networks, you might be kind of going into the election on Tuesday with maybe different expectations or different assumptions. And and it's really kind of interesting to think who's kind of explicit with their predictions and gives the context as to why they are that explicit, right? I think it's it's more than just giving the numbers of this is where we're at, but this is why we think this. And Anthony Savanto is, is so outside the norm from what we heard from the other shows. And it just struck me how little data was in that whole discussion there. I mean, he talked for a minute and a half, which is longer than any, any of the clips we just played from Meet the Press. And yet there wasn't a lot of data at all. He referred to one map. And it kind of aligned with some other conversations that we heard on Face the Nation, for example, on their panel with some of their correspondents. They talked about how the race is tightening, despite what we've heard from analysts like 538, that there really isn't a lot of evidence of of actual tightening happening right now. You know, they even said that there are shy Trump voters out there, despite, you know, some explicit fact checks that we've heard on that issue that, that shy Trump voters, there's no evidence out there that people are are not answering truthfully when somebody calls and asks them who they're voting for. There's no evidence that more people are doing that for Trump. In, in a poll. Yeah, in a poll, than then would be doing that for Biden. That's true. One just quick thing on shy voters. I heard a really excellent episode of The Daily this week. If you didn't catch it, they were looking at not shy Trump voters, but shy Biden voters, people, specifically people who voted for Trump in 2016 and were deciding to vote for Biden now in 2020. So just a whole flip on the assumption of who is shy and why. Let me ask you this, Naomi, because you told me a little bit about it. I didn't hear it, that it was people in their communities very close-knit, often retirement communities that are very pro-Trump, 
but individuals, for whatever reason, decided, you know, they can't support Trump, they want to support Biden, but they don't want to be ostracized from that Right, community. that there's a real risk to their social standing and their quality of life and losing their friends and what they do and how they spend their time by announcing or being open that they're not going to be voting for Trump again in 2020. And so they'd rather, they plan on voting for Biden on, on Tuesday, but they don't want their friends to know. But my question is for you, does that mean they're going to lie to a pollster if a random pollster calls them? I don't know. That's why I'm, that was making the distinction of right. like shy to whom, yes. right? Shy to a stranger or shy, shy to your neighbor. Correct. Yeah. That's a big difference. Yep. Well, let's continue on with Face the Nation in our next section and looking at what the Trump and Biden campaigns are saying these last few days before the election. Rona McDaniel Romney was on Face the Nation again. Of course, she is the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee. And she's been on, you know, she's the head of the Republican Party right now. And she has been on pretty frequently the last few weeks, really making the case as to why Donald Trump and also all these kind of Republican senators deserve to win their seats. Yeah. And this interview was pretty disappointing to me. I was a little wary going into it because I've seen Rona McDaniel on the shows several times, as you mentioned, Naomi, over the past few weeks or months. And she often misrepresents or outright lies when she's on the broadcast. And that's kind of, in my mind, made her something of a, a Kellyanne Conway sort of character who appears on these shows, speaks really quickly, throws out a lot of falsehoods. The host is either really good at dealing with that or really not good at dealing with that. And this was an instance where Margaret Brennan really wasn't good at dealing with that. And so take a listen to these two clips. The first clip, you'll see that Margaret Brennan begins the interview with a pretty weak question. You know, stop and, and listen and try to figure out what exactly is the question that's being asked in this first clip. And then we're going to play the second one immediately after that. And you'll hear a bunch of misstatements. And actually, it's three specific falsehoods and only one pretty weak fact check. We're glad to have you. President Trump staged a late and historic surge back in 2016. But you heard there, there is record early turnout already at 2016 levels in Texas and Hawaii. It's approaching them in a number of other key battlegrounds. So is your turnout, get out the vote operation enough to help you close this on Election Day? Well, I agree with the analysis we just had. COVID has changed things. So it's pulled a lot of Democrat Election Day voters into that absentee and early vote category. And Republicans are wanting to vote on Election Day in person and, and cast their ballot that way. So we feel very strong that we have a surge coming on Election Day. We've also built the best ground game in history with 2.5 million volunteers and 3,000 staff on the ground. And we are contacting these voters right now all weekend through the next few days to make sure they turn out to vote. Joe Biden said, I'm going to get rid of fracking. That's critical in the state of Pennsylvania. When the president, when Joe Biden says, I'm going to eliminate oil and gas, people in the Midwest are cold. We don't want to pay more for gas and for heating costs. So these are really critical issues. And of course, Biden saying, I'm going to raise your taxes is something that's not tenable for a lot of people who are living paycheck to paycheck. As you know, Biden has said uh, fracking on federal lands versus uh, others is, is a difference for him. But uh, to get back to that idea of the ground game that you, you are credited personally with really having invested a lot of money into for the Republican Party, if your voters are so excited about President Trump, why haven't they shown up yet? 
So that first question that we heard Margaret Brennan ask was, is your turnout get out the vote operation enough to help you close this on election day? It's basically like asking, do you have what it takes to win? Well, of course, of course, before the election, the person who represents the team that put it together is not going to say, you know what? Yeah, you know, our team, they just don't have it what it takes. They just, they, they don't, they, they haven't been practicing enough. They haven't been working very hard. They're kind of sleepy today. I don't think they're going to win. They're going to go out on that field and they're going to lose. Well, no, of course, she would never say that her turnout, get out the vote operation was not enough to help them win the election. Like, what kind of question is that? It's just it's just a really bad, bad, bad question. But we hear a series of bad questions here, including the last one is another ex- example that we heard in the second clip where she says, if your voters are so excited about President Trump, why haven't they shown up yet? Well, of course, we know the answer to that. President Trump and the Republican Party have been saying there is massive voter fraud and don't vote through the mail and instead vote in person. So th- this is just, it should be an obvious thing to anybody, including Margaret Brennan, why it is that Republican Party voters have not sent in their ballots and ballots and voted early. I mean, I think if this was three to six months ago, I think I'd be less, I'd have lower expectations where you can say like, you know, what are you going to do to reach your, your voters next? Or how are you going to talk to your base? Lower or, expectations for Margaret Brennan. Right. And and I think she could, it wouldn't be so inappropriate to let Rona McDaniel set the tone for the interview. But by having such like a vague starter question, you're giving the power and timing and pacing of the interview to Rona McDaniel. And I think that's the big mistake that I see in this interview is that we've seen plenty of times, especially on issues of foreign affairs, economics, or or kind of really agency governance or efficiencies. Margaret Brennan controls every minute of those interviews, right? In terms of the pacing, what she's asking, what her expectations are, like she really seems like she's in control. In this interview, by just kind of saying, do you have what it takes to win? Like it's, that's a perfect opportunity for Rona McDaniel to give her some speech about why the Republicans are so great, as opposed to having a deeper critique as to what they are already doing or what they've missed or whatever. You know, like, I think I don't understand her rationale for starting the way she did. And to get to those fact check issues, Ronald McDaniel said that Joe Biden declared, quote, I'm going to get rid of fracking. That's critical in the state of Pennsylvania, Ronald McDaniel says. Of course, we've heard multiple times on multiple occasions, Joe Biden say he is not going to get rid of fracking. That, that, I mean, that was a whole conversation that we heard on State of the Union with AOC, saying she doesn't like fracking, but Joe Biden refuses to be against it, right? The the second thing that Rona McDaniel said that was untrue was that Joe Biden said he's going to eliminate oil and gas. Of course, that is not what he said in the debate. Anyone who watched the debate or listened to our episode knows that Joe Biden said instead that he was going to push the country towards a future without oil. But that doesn't mean he's going to eliminate oil and gas. And just to remind everybody, it was something like five to 10 years ago. I don't know if you remember this. You would watch TV and you would see commercials by BP, you know, the oil company. And they said BP stands for Beyond Petroleum. 
Of course, it used to be British Petroleum. I mean, that's what they were formed as, <laughs> right. British Petroleum. But they did this whole rebranding campaign saying, we're about beyond petroleum. We're investing in other areas to become an energy company of the future. This was like five or 10 years ago. An oil company was saying they are moving beyond petroleum. So the idea that a candidate can say, we're looking towards a future with a world of global warming, where we're going to move in the direction beyond petroleum, I don't think that's groundbreaking stuff. And of course, he did not say that he is going to eliminate oil and gas. And then finally, Biden saying he's going to raise your taxes Again, he's made it very clear no taxes will be raised on people who make under $400,000. But the only fact check we get from Margaret Brennan is that, and I'm going to play it for you again. As you know, Biden has said uh, fracking on federal lands versus uh, others is, is a difference for him. Not nearly substantial or thorough enough for the warranted response that is required. Completely useless. What a useless fact check. Rona McDaniel says, that Biden's going to get rid of fracking. And the fact check is, Biden said fracking on federal land versus others is a difference for him. Difference how? What do you mean difference? What the hell does that mean? A difference. That's not a fact check. That's garbage. Trash. <laughs> you have to choose one. You have to choose one or the other. It's, <sighs> it's trash garbage. <laughs> um, just a quick side note. And I saw this on Twitter, and I wish I could attribute it directly, but I don't remember who. But I remember like a week or two ago, I saw a tweet that said, if we didn't have the Electoral College, when we talk about climate change, we'd be talking about wildfires and not fracking. And that is just so true. Pennsylvania is a small state with a smallish economy in terms of the number of people who work in the fracking industry. I don't know. I could rant on this for a while, but the idea that fracking is the end-all and be-all conversation around climate change, that, that is trash. Well, it's a very good point. I mean, there's so many more people affected by wildfires in California than are... And Oregon and Washington State. ...than are in the fracking industry. And yet, the conversation is focused on that because that's a swing state. That's a swing state. Yep. All right. We spent a lot of time on this failed interview of Ronan McDaniel. But it's important to point out, especially since we have been praising Face the Nation for doing stellar episodes on the coronavirus now here on the political side of things, and they are not doing very well. There was another Republican interview that we thought was notable or that we thought we should discuss, and that is the interview on this week in which George Stephanopoulos talks to Jason Miller, an advisor to the Trump campaign. Donald Trump, the past few days, sent something really controversial about doctors and the coronavirus. You know, our doctors get more money if somebody dies from COVID. You know that, right? I mean, our doctors are very smart people. So what they do is they say, I'm sorry, but, you know, everybody dies of COVID. This did not sit well with a lot of shows. This is the conversation between George Stephanopoulos and Jason Miller as the Trump campaign continues to defend it. The AMA responded to that immediately. The head of the AMA saying it was a malicious, outrageous, and completely misguided for the president to suggest that doctors are inflating COVID deaths. Why does the president repeatedly uh, attack doctors saying they're working on the front line, saying they're inflating COVID numbers? 
Well, George, good morning. Sunday morning, where I would tell you that tens of thousands of people are waking up in Pittsburgh this morning and reading the Post-Gazette and seeing that they've endorsed a Republican for the first time since 1972. That's President Trump for his re-election. So we're excited about that. Uh, to your comment about the president yesterday on the campaign trail, I don't think he was attacking anybody at all. I think he was talking about how most Americans want to safely and securely reopen the country, get back to work, get back to life as normal. Jeez, and we all this just virus. saw it. He was and talking is, about but, it, doctors inflating COVID the deaths for money. Uh, George, I'm not going to get into the, the billing aspects of which there have been many uh, reports on. There have been all sorts of independent things of pointing to that. But the fact of the matter is people want to get their life back to normal. They're tired of the lockdowns. You look at these Democrat-run states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. We're seeing this on the campaign trail with the rallies. People are tired of these lockdowns. They want to safely reopen. So you're repeating that you believe that doctors are inflating COVID deaths for money. I think there have been a number of reports that have raised issues out there regarding billing and things like that. But again, the choice on the ballot on Tuesday is President Trump and people who want tax cuts or Joe Biden and people who want tax hikes. That's what's on the ballot on Tuesday. Well, but the president's talking about doctors on the front lines inflating uh, COVID deaths, which, as the head of the AMA said, is malicious and completely misguided. So George here just seems completely insulted by... This defense by Jason Miller, and I think in part because Jason Miller tries to act like we didn't just hear the clip, like we didn't hear the words that were coming out of President Trump's mouth. I mean, this isn't anything new. People who work for President Trump, candidate Trump, whatever, like they're constantly trying to get us to ignore the words that came out of the president's mouth. But it's it's never not surprising, I think. Like four years later, I'm still just like, we heard it. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, pretty much every show that talked about this clip or played it in any way pushed back on it, fact-checked it. And I think George did kind of the best job here in making it a topic of conversation repeatedly to to remind people and push back on this argument that doctors were actually falsifying data to make money And when you hear the Trump clip, it almost sounds like doctors are killing people. I mean, that's what it almost sounds like, the way that it's the way that it's played. I do want to point out that Meet the Press failed on this. Meet the Press played the clip, played the misinformation and did not correct it at all and did not really address it. They just played the clip as as like a part of their bank of clips. Yeah. And I guess I would say on State of the Union, Jake asked this to Senator Rick Scott and like, Rick Scott just gave some rando answer and then they just kind of flew past and went to the next topic. Like it wasn't yeah. a substantial back and forth as we see here with George Stephanopoulos and, and, and Jason Miller. And this was so substantial that George, and I thought this might be the case, George brought it up in the panel and I thought he might bring it up. He brought it up with Chris Christie as the first question of the panel. Take a listen. And Chris, I want to begin with you, and I want you to get to the possibility for President Trump going forward. But I have to start out by having you explain, if you can, the strategy of the president going after doctors during this COVID pandemic in the final days of the campaign. Let's talk about what's going to happen on election night, George. Um, On election night, uh, I think that the president and what they're focusing on now, because I have no explanation for that. So I don't. I don't understand it. Yeah. There you hear Christie trying to dodge the question and then reminding, being reminded that he's on the panel and he's paid to actually answer the questions that he's asked. And just one more note about President Trump's claim that doctors are inflating numbers. We saw this also come up on Face the Nation in which we thought Dr. Scott Gottlieb gave an excellent, excellent explanation as to where this is all coming from and why the president is wrong. 
And just a reminder, Gottlieb used to be a member of the Trump administration. He was the former FDA commissioner. Well, they're making money off of it. I think it's troubling to suggest that doctors are manipulating the data to try to get higher reimbursement. The CARES Act, which the president signed, provides for additional money, about 20 percent more money for a COVID pneumonia case than a regular pneumonia case. The reason was was because it's more expensive to take care of these patients in the hospitals. The hospitals are bleeding money. This was a way to try to get them more resources. But you have to have COVID and you have to have pneumonia and it has to be documented. Any doctor that would be documenting COVID pneumonia in a case where the patient doesn't have pneumonia, that's fraud. Also, CMS implemented measures to try to encourage hospitals to do more testing inside the hospital. So the testing that doctors are doing in the hospitals is because the government has encouraged them to do that testing. But the only additional money is if you, if you have pneumonia and you have COVID. That's not these patients that they're talking about that happen to come in with another condition and have COVID. There's mm-hmm. no additional reimbursement for that. I mean, of course, President Trump would not have that nuance and would not be able to explain that nuance. But it was actually truly fascinating that it's kind of like one specific scenario in which a COVID patient has pneumonia, not a COVID patient has an asthma attack or a COVID patient has a stroke or any other possible range of hospital interventions that are required. And, you know, the fact that this was in the CARES Act that incentivize hospitals to treat patients and to kind of really give the care that these communities needed. And so clearly the president doesn't really know what he's talking about, but good job to Dr. Gottlieb for giving us that full context. Yeah, literally the follow-up to that is uh, like from Margaret Brennan, who do you think is telling him that? Like, why, why is he even talking about this? And Gottlieb's answer is, you know, unfortunately, there's probably advisors telling them, telling him that I don't think the president arrived at that on his own. That's a lot of shade without a lot of words. (laughs) Yeah. But in thinking in terms of the strategic steps of each of the campaigns, we also wanted to note what Anita Dunn mentioned on this week. Anita Dunn is one of Vice President Biden's closest advisors. And in this interview, she describes that while in many cases, at the last minute, right before an election, campaigns are usually trying to decide between very few options of where to invest their resources. That's not what they're experiencing this time around. Georgia, North Carolina, and Florida are all states that I think we can reasonably assume we're going to hear results from either election night or early the next morning. They all tend to get their votes counted on election night. Arizona is a state that, again, is a battleground for the first time in a long time for Democrats. And that's a state that we may very well know results from. I think if you look at what we've done as a campaign, we've seen states that we want to protect so that we've worked in states like Nevada, in Minnesota, Virginia, Colorado, not taking anything for granted. Then there are the states that we want to go win, um, to our path to 270. And then there are expansion states. So our map has grown more expansive as we've come closer to election day. We may know the results election night. We may know them the next day. The one thing that is clear, though, is that we're going to make sure all of the votes get counted. Yeah, as you mentioned, Naomi, this is this is really notable. You know, it's worth pointing out from a campaign perspective how this is different from a usual situation where, as you noted, Usually a campaign says, "Okay, we've got all these states and there's only one or two 
you know, swing states out there. And maybe, you know, as you get closer and closer to the election, that gets limited down to just one, right? And you're like, this is the one we have to win. And we're pouring all of our time and attention and energy into that one state. To the contrary, the Biden campaign is seeing the map open up and, you know, seeing these numbers where they're pretty neck and neck with Trump in areas like we talked about in the beginning, like Georgia or North Carolina or or even Florida that previously had been states that went Republican. So in our last segment, before we finish today's show, we wanted to look at the Senate races and things that were said by prominent senators as well, and just kind of other noteworthy things to keep in mind as we move into the election in just a couple days. The first clip to kind of discuss is a comment that was made by Claire McCaskill on the Meet the Press panel. Claire McCaskill was a senator from the state of Missouri. She lost her re-election bid in 2018, and now she's an analyst for NBC News. Senator McCaskill here had a very interesting note about what is really motivating Democrats to come out. One thing, Chuck, you know who the most unpopular politician in America is? It's not Donald Trump. It's Mitch McConnell. Uh, Yeah, everybody wants to defeat Donald Trump on my side of the aisle, but they really want to remove Mitch McConnell. And, you know, don't sleep on Iowa here. Yes, there was a respected poll out last night. Mm -hmm. They showed Joni Ernst up. There's a respected poll out this morning. This shows Greenfield up by the same margin. Uh, I, I don't think anybody should think Iowa and North Carolina and Maine are in any way decided for the Republicans. This is all going to come down to a few votes on Election Day. It's true. And one thing about these Senate races, so many of them could take days uh, to find out the result. Yeah, we cannot lose sight of these Senate races. As McCaskill's doing there, she's trying to correct the record when people focus on a single poll, right? I mean, we've hopefully learned over time, and I would hope that these hosts have learned, that you can't can't hang your hat on a single poll, Right. And maybe as you get closer to the election, when there are fewer and fewer polls out there, and these are kind of like your final polls before the election, maybe that is a poll you should be kind of talking about or thinking about a little more specifically. But these these races, you can't just say, oh, this person's up one or two, and therefore, you know, they're going to win it, and it's in the bag for them, and, you know, everyone else should go home, the game is over. That's That's clearly, clearly not the case in a lot of these places. As we mentioned kind of in our previous discussions of Senate races, there have been frustrations over kind of setting the the scene and letting people understand what's at stake, how many the Democrats need to win to win control, how many Republicans need to defend in order to keep control of the Senate. Those, those basic kind of scene-setting things did not happen on any of the shows this week in discussion of these Senate races. Yeah, I mean, it, they were pretty shallow in, tom- in terms of how substantial those conversations went. I, but I just thought this was a really interesting note from Senator McCaskill and really trying to understand all the different ways people might be motivated by their vote or what's driving their vote or what they're thinking about or, you know, how that motivates whether or not they donate or volunteer. I mean, people have a lot of feelings about Donald Trump, sure, but he's not the only thing on people's mind, I think. And I don't think enough shows have talked about that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, just anecdotally, I've had conversations with people who I've been very surprised uh, that, you know, these are people who previously might have identified as Republicans 
have been somewhat frustrated by the Trump presidency, but I have been surprised in their conversations how frustrated they are by senators, Republican senators, for rubber stamping a lot of Trump's directives, for protecting him, and also for being very hypocritical, particularly in terms of this Supreme Court nomination, which we didn't hear a lot about today, but really sticks in some people's minds that you had folks like Lindsey Graham who were very, very clear about what they believed and why they believed it in 2016 and then just turned on a dime. And there's just a lot of resentment for politicians who so blatantly, Mm -hmm. you know, go back on their own word and their own stated principles. Yeah. And I think that's that's something important to keep in mind in that that sure, there's the blatant dishonesty, but then there's the complete dysfunction of Congress, specifically dysfunction of the Senate and how little work they get done. Yeah. And beyond it, beyond confirming judges. Beyond, yeah. Beyond confirming judges, beyond budget reconciliation d- bills. But there's this has been happening for years now under McConnell's leadership. And there's just such a level of weariness and kind of people are just so put up with it that I think fed up with it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, but but it's interesting to think about how much the disdain for Trump kind of takes up the oxygen, and we don't really explore that enough. Yeah, and we've talked about for a long time that there hasn't been enough recognition of McConnell's role in a lot of oh these gosh, things, or yeah. McConnell's responsibility for shelving important things like the COVID relief bill that's still sitting on his desk that was passed by the House five months ago. And he hasn't participated in those no- negotiations. Right, right. So there was another senator interview that we also wanted to discuss in this segment, and that's the conversation that Jake Tapper had with Senator Rick Scott. Senator Rick Scott is a senator from Florida. Prior to winning his seat in 2018, he was the governor of Florida. What stood out to me about this interview was really how much Jake was not listening. This really, they were big questions, they were important questions, but it was still a checklist interview and that he had his topics he wanted to go through and then Senator Rick Scott would answer it and he would just move on. And there were so many important opportunities to ask follow-ups that I was pretty frustrated by this whole exchange. According to the New York Times, quote, Trump advisors said their best hope was if the president wins Ohio and and Florida is too close to call early in the night, depriving Mr. Biden a swift victory and giving Mr. Trump the room to undermine the validity of uncounted mail-in ballots in the days after, unquote. Obviously, only valid ballots should count, but is that really the strategy? Attack legitimate ballots that have not been counted? I mean, a lot of people in Florida uh, voted vote by mail or early. I assume you want all of the ballots right. to count, a lot. right? Yeah, I mean, that, first off, I, I think we all want... Um, we want to know the results that night. I, I did a, I, I put a bill out that would have national standards for mail-in ballots. It works in Florida. Uh, you can vote here by mail-in. You got to get your, you got to get your, your vote in, right? Uh, you can't wait until after election day. Uh, you can do early and you can do uh, election day. So, but if you're going to do by mail, you got to get your vote in early. And you can check in Florida. You can check to say, make sure it got in. Make sure they accepted your, you know, your signature. That you know that so all those things. So. I want people to vote. Uh, I hope we find out election night. I hope it's, it's not a fight. Jake, you remember after my election in 2018, uh, the Democrat uh, attorney came down and said, I don't care what, the, what happened here. We're going to win this election. 
that shouldn't be happening. This should not be dealt with through the court system. It should be because people legitimately, you vote, go get your vote in. If you believe in whatever, whoever you believe in, go vote and make sure your ballot's in on time. And, and I'm sure you would agree that all valid ballots that have gotten there on time, according to the state law, should be counted. Let's turn yeah. to coronavirus. You oh, said absolutely. this week that, do you agree that no matter who wins on Tuesday, there needs to be a more aggressive federal response to contain the pandemic? You know, well, first off, we haven't beaten it. I think let's all agree on that. Um, I think we have to, all of us, all of us need to wear a mask. We need to social distance. I, you know, I, I think that the FDA, I think Steve Hunt, the FDA has done a great job working on therapeutics. I think we've made a lot of progress there. Hopefully, uh, we're making a lot of progress on the vaccine, uh, but we still have a lot of work to do. I especially work to do on testing. We got to get more testing out there uh, for the private sector. We've got to get, uh, we got to get more information. One thing that I've, I've never understood is why we don't have more information out. Now, most of that information is accumulated at the, at the state level uh, on healthcare. Um, so I just think, I just, think we got to get more information out there so people can make good informed decisions. That's what I tried to do as governor when I had hurricanes or when I had the Zika, Zika healthcare crisis. Get people information, they'll make good decisions. Does it, does it bother you when the president holds these rallies and people are not wearing masks and people are not social distancing? So just two really bad moments in this interview. You hear in that first clip where they're having a discussion about valid ballots. Here's the thing about valid ballots. People see them very differently in this country. Some people think they're only valid if they're in the elections office by November 3rd. Some people think it's fine if it's in a mailbox by November 3rd. Some people think you need to put it in the mail on November 3rd, which is different than it being postmarked on November 3rd if you are taking it to a mailbox that picks it up at 3 p.m. or 5 p.m. or whatever. It's just so frustrating. It's so, so frustrating that they act like they're having this like thorough conversation about the like validity of the election. And they're like, you know, they're like tap dancing barely on the surface. Yeah. Like, what do you mean by valid? Valid is doing a lot of work in that sentence, isn't it? Yeah, it's, like, what... <laughs> it's a powerhouse word. There. Yeah. What is that? What is that word? Like, I think we can all agree that uh, a candidate should win on Tuesday. It's like, <laughs> what candidate? What are we talking about? Which candidate? Yeah, it's it's really bad. And then that second clip, I mean, again, like Jake is just not even listening at all. Rick Scott says, you know, it's so important that people get the information that they need to be able to make choices to stay healthy and to protect themselves. Well, gee, I don't know. The president hasn't let the, the scientists lead the communication strategy. The president yeah, hasn't. absolutely involved it's completely cut out the cdc and part of the communication strategy this whole year he's having scott atlas who isn't even an expert in infectious diseases make a lot of the policy decisions now on on covid19 there's no kind of like strategic rollout for what the federal government is doing versus our state government versus local and how to empower residents to kind of know the difference and how to be you know safe as they move across the country. There's nothing. So if you're talking about, you know, information gaps, like have that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Like, what are you even talking about when you say you want people to have information? You know? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with Rick Scott that I need information. Like, I always need information. <laughs> like, well, if it's valid information. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but then, like, just listen to what he's saying and what he's not saying and ask a follow-up question. Jake Tapper doesn't do that at all. He just moves on to his next topic. 
Yeah, it's it's been a while since we've seen this this level of really bad checklist style interview, especially on such an important Sunday. It's 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 very 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 bizarre. And the only explanation I can have for it is that Tapper just had so many interviews lined up. I mean, holy cow, they had a two hour show and two different introductions. Yeah. You know, the state of our union is on the edge of our seat. And then an hour later, the state of our union is, is something else. That's... Some other state. We The whole the whole union changed their state in, in 60 minutes. But just truly disappointing. Just like I could not describe it more. And I think the part to me is that Rick Scott tries to come off as very measured and very like, I'm here to have a conversation. Oh, sure. Yeah, or whatever. He's sure. not like Ron Johnson from Wisconsin who just goes in the show to like scream at whoever's asking him questions. He's not Lindsey Graham who, you know, just if you don't agree with him, he just kind of tries to laugh you off the, the microphone or whatever. Like Rick Scott is trying to act he he wants to keep his career like he's an ambitious man and he wants to be around a long time and jake just completely drops the ball here well yeah i mean there were questions about rallies and there were no questions about well have you been to one are you comfortable with it and then of course rick scott's at a rally tonight yeah why not ask hey i see you're going to one tonight what are the protections you're gonna do are you bringing your family do you bring your children are you gonna encourage rally goers to put their their masks on that was trash. The more I think about it, the more like enraged I get. So just total trash. But we did not want to end on that note, of course. We do want to end with uh, a kind of a fun series of clips and kind of something that is a little uplifting to probably Polylog listeners that the Fox News Sunday Power Player of the Week has found its way out of the proverbial gutter of their very partisan choice a few weeks ago and uh, was back with actually a pretty interesting power player. Isn't that right, Naomi? Yeah. So Chris Wallace essentially takes the time to note an important player in the Fox News elections team as the person looking at the numbers, looking at the votes and really calling the states as they come in. While some of us are in front of the cameras on election night, all of us at Fox News know who the real star is. He leads the team that will be crunching the numbers and calling the races that evening. And he's our power player of the week. I care a great deal about election night. It's sort of the night you live for. Arnon Mishkin is director of the Fox News decision team. Ten pollsters, statisticians, and political scientists whose job on election night is to call the winners and losers. The team is divided into two groups. In honor of the World Series uh, winning uh, Los Angeles Dodgers, we, the teams are called Koufax and Drysdale. Each focuses on sort of half the country and to sort of look in detail at what really is going on in that state. Before they call a result, the entire team has to agree. One of their tools is the Fox News voter analysis, a survey of 100,000 Americans in all 50 states. After 2016, we switched from exit polls to the Fox News voter analysis. Why? Historically, the exit poll was slightly skewed. Younger and particularly more Democratic voters were much more likely to fill out a survey than Republican voters. On election night, how will you merge the actual vote count with the Fox News voter analysis? That is really the $64,000 question this year. 
The challenge is that millions more Americans are voting by mail. How much more complicated is it going to be to call a state this year as compared to 2016? Between Democrats voting early and Republicans voting on Election Day, you can't do the, that traditional kind of arithmetic that we could do. So this was an outstanding segment and a nice peek into the work that goes on behind the scenes for these types of situations. There were actually similar profiles and discussions of, of these sorts of things. I heard on the NPR Politics podcast last week where they were speaking with uh, the team at the AP that calls a lot of these races and a lot of the networks rely on the AP's calls. And then there was also a discussion on the 538 podcast, an interview with the team, one of the team members who leads up the decision desk at ABC News. And, you know, that was very interesting because he had been working at those decision desks since 1999 and so had a lot of insight into, you know, the changing nature of that job over the last 20 years. Yeah. And I think anytime I mean, this is another form of transparency, right? Like it's a way to kind of gloat and kind of give praise to your team, but it's also a way to be transparent to the viewer, to your audience to say like, look, there are people behind here who we trust, who we respect, who are doing this work. And we're just going to give, you know, a few minutes to describe them, you know, their, their integrity and describe their work process so that you feel more comfortable with whatever you see on Tuesday night. Yeah. And so you have an understanding too of what, what do these things actually mean? What's the difference, for example, between saying that a, a, a race is, is leaning in one direction or you're actually calling that state for somebody? And what is the difference between a state being called for a candidate and a candidate actually winning that state, which are two different things, right? I really found it fascinating, the discussion about how all members of the team have to agree to the call before they make the call. Yeah, that's absolutely the whole the whole team has to decide is very interesting, very cool. One of the insights I got from those discussions of the decision desk leads at AP and ABC News, and I can't remember which was which because I literally heard them back to back, though I apologize. But one of them pointed out that they would only call a state when there was no path for the candidate who was losing in the vote to be able to make up their votes. And that was based on detailed analysis of all the counties and the demographics and uh, and all that sort of thing. And this this Fox News panel or what do they call it? The 100,000 person survey that they were mentioning. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. That is something that's being used by at least one of the other organizations that I was mentioning because they recognize the limitations of those exit polls and how in 2016 the exit polls were pretty decisively coming out for Hillary. And that ended up obviously not being the case. So quite the turnaround in Power Player of the Week in terms of my emotional response to it. But uh, that's, that's election 22, feeling all the feelings. So how do we feel about these shows, Naomi? That takes us to show rankings. I would say meet the press number one. I think I decided that very early. I would say meet the press number one, number two. I probably want to say face the nation number five. I think they did the worst in covering the politics. Do you agree? Yeah, I think that's fair. Face the nation had some real weak spots. I think I would say number two. I think I want to say this week. Yeah, I could see that. I think George did a pretty darn good job. 
And then three Fox News Sunday for State of the Union. Yeah, despite the marathon episode and all the people that were booked on State of the Union, the quality went down and we saw a panel with Rick Santorum. What the hell? What year is this? It's not a weekday where they're kind of fluffing all their shows with the rando panelists. Yeah, that was disappointing. The first panel we've seen on State of the Union since the pandemic. Yeah, no thank you. Yeah, and literally right out of the gate, Jake Tapper had to like... Fact check. Fact check Rick Santorum right there. I I hope it doesn't happen again. Yeah, so a very close five. So that's one, Meet the Press, two, This Week, three, Fox News Sunday, four, State of the Union, five, Face the Nation. And for the Dialogue Challenge, it's to send us your thoughts. That's what we'd love to to, to hear. And however you hear it, if it's on social media, if it's an interesting tweet, if it's something you saw in the paper, if it's something you saw in the news, I mean... We consume news in so many different ways nowadays that it'd be really interesting to think about what resonates with you and what has you thinking. Or what just totally falls down on the job. That's true. All right, Naomi, any closing thoughts for this election? Vote if you haven't already. And just, you know, I think this is the same thing as we said last week. Like, call someone, text someone, make sure that they have voted, that they have a plan you know, offer to cover their Lyft or Uber bill if they need a ride to the to drop off their ballot. I mean, there's I think sometimes people say like vote, but then they're not willing to give like practical solutions to barriers. Right. So maybe it's a ride. Maybe it's translating for a friend's grandmother or doing some research for a friend or I don't, just a practical, tangible thing that you can do to get someone to cast their ballot. Yeah, you kind of reminded me it's a good contrast between Chuck Todd at the end of the episode today. He said, you know, if it's Sunday, it's meet the press. And the music was playing and swelling. And he just quietly said, go vote. And I couldn't even like tell exactly what he said. I had to like rewind it to hear it. And then I was like, what is he saying? Is that like picking up his mic like, you know, before they turned off the air? But no, he was saying go vote. But look at that versus the CBS News like, we developed this whole website and system for understanding exactly, you know, that you can go to as a resource to understand how you can it. vote. Maybe NBC right. News has something, but like as a show, F- Face the Nation is in- actively encouraging yes. and promoting it. So different. So different. Although they didn't today. So. Yeah. Although Jake Tapper at the end of his whole thing says, you know, uh, his outrage corner was like inspiration corner trying to get people <laughs> to vote. So First time. <laughs> yeah. Well... Send that text, send that support, and send us your tweets and send us your comments. And we'll see where we are one week from now. I I do think, here's my prediction, okay? We're doing, everyone always says, I'm not in the prediction game, but apparently we are. Yeah, I'll play that game. (laughs) No, my prediction is I think we will know who won the presidency before the sun comes up on Wednesday morning. Ooh, bold claim. I'm not willing to make that claim. I I think think we'll know this week, maybe Wednesday, maybe Thursday. I think we'll know. I think we'll know. Put some money on it. Yeah. (laughs) Brendan's not a gambler. (laughs) I am. (laughs) All right. We'll see you next week. Hopefully I have 120 bucks. You can email us at podcast (laughs) at polylog.com with those voice memos. Yes. Voice memos really is is the the name of the game. It's so easy. Just search for voice memos on your phone. You know, 30 seconds or less. Let us know how you feel. Send send it to us. You can follow me at Beastidal on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at SoderNaomi underscore, and you can follow the show at PolyLogCast. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk with you and hear from you, hopefully, very soon. Bye. Bye.